We come again this morning to 2 Peter, and we're still in chapter 2. And just by way of reminder, Peter has started this chapter by mentioning that just as there were false prophets before and during the Old Testament, so there will also be false prophets now and false teachers. And so last week we heard from Pastor Alex about the submissive sobriety and historical confidence that we need in the true biblical gospel. We also heard about the ultimate perspective, that God is the one who renders judgment, and it's up to him. Well, this morning, Peter continues to discuss the false teachers and their end. This morning, as we read, we'll start in verse 9, just to give us a good context for what's going on. And now for you young worshipers, there's another reference to the Old Testament this morning, so see if you can spot that as we read. Hear now the word of the Lord from 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 22. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is the living and active word of God. Let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. So now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Right now, the number one game on most app stores for the past few months running is a game called Among Us. And in this game, you play as a little cartoon spaceman, going around a map, doing various tasks. But the catch is, there's about ten or so crew members. But anywhere from one to three are actually imposters, out to sabotage the things that you're doing and actually kill you and the other players. Now, your only weapon against these imposters is to call meetings and vote someone out, but you don't always know who to vote out. And the game ends either when you voted out the imposters or completed all your tasks, 
or the impostors have sabotaged everything or killed enough people. And so people enjoy this game because you don't know what role you're going to be until the game begins. You also have to try to figure out who is the imposter. And there's a suspense all along of who's who. But what if this wasn't just a game? Here in 2 Peter, Peter describes imposters, false teachers that will come among us. And we can't just close an app on our phone. We can't just get off the computer to get away from it. This is real, true life. And so the first readers of 2 Peter, I'm sure, had a lot of questions, and we have the same ones today. We asked, how can we know false teachers? How do we not get taken in by false teachers? How do we know we haven't already been taken in by false teachers? Whether you're a longtime believer or you're curious about the Christian faith or anywhere in between, we all want the truth about false teachers. And as we've already seen, this passage is intense, and it's very complex Uh, Everybody who preaches it outlines it very differently. I saw one outline with 11 different points, so I'm not going to do that this morning. But I have two themes that come in this passage over and over. We're going to do a little bit of jumping around, but the two themes are that they're arrogant and empty, and they're insatiable and enslaved. So first, false teachers are arrogant and empty. So look with me, starting in the second half of verse 10. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. These teachers, these false teachers, are bold enough to blaspheme, to slander, to speak evil of the glorious ones. Now, some of your translations might say glories, and we aren't given specifics as to what or who this is, but what we know is these are true, real, spiritual realities that these false teachers are speaking against, be it angels or be it the glories of God himself. Now, in contrast to this, the angels won't even blaspheme the false teachers. Look at verse 11. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them, against the false teachers, before the Lord. They let the Lord have judgment. We actually get a glimpse of this in Jude 9. It's an interesting passage. We don't have time to really talk about it this morning. But Michael, the archangel, doesn't presume to give judgment even before Satan, but rather says, the Lord rebuke you. And so Peter here is drawing a distinction between angels and what they do and just how arrogant these false teachers are. Now our passage goes on. Look at the second half of verse 12. They blaspheme about matters which they are ignorant. So they don't even know what they're talking about, but yet they're rendering judgment. All the way down to verse 18, it says, for speaking loud boasts of folly. They are bombastically boasting about what they know nothing about. This is pure and sheer arrogance. So clearly these false teachers are arrogant. They claim this great knowledge. They claim to have this great power. But in reality, what are they? Look at verse 17. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. In reality, they're empty. He calls them waterless springs. They promise refreshment, but it's a false hope. You see, in that context, they didn't have the Brita filter. They didn't have the faucet. They went to springs. And if you're on a journey, you hope that the spring you got to had water. And he's saying, everybody goes to the spring in hopes of refreshment, and it's empty. He also calls them mist driven by a storm. Now, it's also here maybe the promise of refreshment, the idea that it might rain and then goes away. But also, there's an elusiveness to these teachers. They're illusory. They're here today, gone tomorrow, a flash in the pan, a dime, a dozen. So these false teachers are arrogant and empty. An example of this that comes to my mind is a man named Carlos Enrique Raposo, known also by his nickname, Carlos Kaiser. 
Now, he's not a false teacher per se, but he was a Brazilian soccer player in the 80s and 90s. Now, you might say, well, what about this connects? Well, he was on four different teams in the city of Rio de Janeiro at one time or another, played for other teams in other countries as well as as far as France, but he never played a single minute of a single game. He couldn't actually play soccer, believe it or not. But what he would do is he would say that he was really good. He would get contacts, sometimes legitimate soccer players, to vouch for him. He had a lot of business people who would say, oh yeah, he's a great player, you should sign him. And he would come in arrogant, swaggering about the things he could do. And in the first practice, he would fake an injury. He would pull a hamstring or have some other thing happen to him, and then he would be out. Then he couldn't play, and he had an excuse. And this would happen until the team got fed up and sold him somewhere else, and he would keep going from team to team. The only reason it worked is because he talked a great game. He was so arrogant. But in reality, he was empty. Only through his connections and his charisma was he able to keep up this web of lies. But he was arrogant and empty. But this is just a game. I mean, sure, it costs these clubs thousands of dollars to sign this guy, but it's still money. Whereas these arrogant and empty false teachers in 2 Peter are dealing in human souls. And that is a much, much higher cost. So these false teachers are arrogant and they're empty, but Peter also says they're insatiable and they're enslaved. Look with me back at the beginning of verse 12. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. So they're irrational, they're instinctual, they're animals. It's like Paul says in Philippians, their God is their belly. Now, like any harmful animal who's a danger to themselves and others, their end, as it says, is to be caught and destroyed. Now, he goes on in verse 13. Look at the second half of verse 13. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Now, we think about deeds of darkness. We call them that for a reason, because they're done at night. Right? They're called works of darkness throughout the New Testament. But these false teachers are so arrogant that they do these things during the day. They are so insatiable to these, for these desires. They are so unsatisfied that they have to keep doing them over and over. And to stretch the animal metaphor that's already here, a key sign of a nocturnal animal with rabies is that they're active during the day. This is a problem. And these teachers count it pleasure to do these things. They can't help themselves They're insatiable for sin. They're unsatisfied, and they continue over and over. So well does Peter call them blots and blemishes because they seem to be with us. But even though they're with us, they're not truly of us, as we'll see. And so he goes on in verse 14. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have eyes full of adultery. They can only see people through the lens of their own pleasure. They only see people as sexual objects to be exploited for their own gain. They only view things through the lens of sin. What an indictment on these false teachers. They also entice unsteady souls. Their hearts are also trained in greed, not in godliness, but in greediness. And this is where we have the example of Balaam. So, Young worshippers, the Old Testament story that's referenced here is Balaam and his donkey. We have verse 15 and 16, which says, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. 
Now, many have called Balaam a prophet for profit. You see, Balaam was only about what he could get for himself. He was willing to curse God's own people if it would line his pockets. And so as the story goes, God sends an angel to stop him in the road. He can't see it, but his donkey can, and so refuses to move forward. Balaam continues to be the donkey until the donkey cries out and tells him of his folly. Now, these false teachers have already been called irrational animals. Well, you know it's bad if the animal has to speak sense into you. This is how Peter describes the false teachers. So they're insatiable for sin. But what becomes of it? In the second half of verse 12, it says, they are destroyed in their destruction. It could also be translated, they're corrupted by their corruption. And so we have this idea of long-term judgment, right? The beginning of verse 13, they suffer wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. But what happens in the short term? We know there's an ultimate perspective, but what happens in the short term? Look at verse 19. They who are barely escaping, I'm oh, sorry, they who promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. They're enslaved. They're enslaved to this. And so when we look at it, we see that they promise people freedom. They promise people you can do what you want. But in reality, we have slavery. They're overcome by their own desires, and it enslaves them. Think about it this way. If I say to you, you can always do what you want, to many that sounds like freedom. But if you're only ever doing what you want, you're enslaved to your own desires. There has to be more than this. So they promise this freedom, but what they promise is actually slavery. You see, the freedom that the gospel gives is true freedom. Galatians 6.13 says, For you are called to freedom, but it goes on, Don't use it as an opportunity for the flesh, but rather through love serve one another. Wait, Wait a second. Serving one another? I thought we had freedom. This is the beauty of gospel freedom, that there's freedom in serving one another. Indeed, P.T. Forsyth, the Scottish theologian, put it this way. He said, The first duty of every human soul is to find not its freedom, but its master. The first duty of every human soul is not to find its freedom, but its master. So these false prophets are enslaved and they're insatiable. Now look what happens in verse 20. For if, after they have escaped the defilement of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome by their desires, as we talked about before, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Now, these false prophets will come to an untimely end, but an end that is fitting for them. But the question here is, did these prophets have salvation at one time? Did they gain salvation and then lose it? Well, we know God's saints persevere. We see that throughout the New Testament. So what's happening here? Rather, they never were saved to begin with. And I think verse 22 helps us with this. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So Peter is again using this animalistic metaphor, but you see here the dog was always and ever a dog. It was never anything different. So true about these false teachers. So these false teachers are insatiable and enslaved. To go back to Carlos Kaiser, when asked about why he did what he did, he said, I wanted the lifestyle. I wanted the fame. I wanted the women. I wanted the money. And that's what kept him in his deception. But another way of thinking about what it means to be enslaved by our own desires is something called the monkey trap. 
Now, some people debate whether or not this is actually true. I've seen a nature documentary where it seems to be happening. And that's where a hunter will dig a hole to catch a monkey. And inside, the hole's just big enough for the monkey to get his hand through. And inside, he'll put something the monkey wants. So I was, I was watching, and it was this block of salt. And so the monkey will stick their hand in, will grasp onto the salt, and then because their hand is in a fist, they can't pull back out of the hole. And the monkey will not let go of the salt. And so they're easily captured. This is a perfect example of being enslaved by desire. This is what happens to the false teachers. But not only are they enslaved, they're encouraging you, hey, stick your hand in there too and become enslaved by your own desires. And we see this all the time. There are many, many cults, there are too many to list, whose leaders seem like they're okay, but really they're out to satisfy their own desires, their own sexual deviances, only things that they want. They will use you and spit you out. This is what false teachers do. So false teachers are insatiable and enslaved, and as we've seen, they're arrogant and empty, but what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us today? Well, a few things. As many have said, truth does not belong to the one who simply shouts loudest. Truth is not the one who has the highest monetary value, the most views, the most likes, the most retweets. That does not make something true. And even the most popular post, the most popular preacher, the most popular, popular message must be sifted and sifted through God's holy word. Paul gives a warning at the end of Romans. He says this, Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles, contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons, persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So Paul says, watch out for them. We need to be like the Bereans in Acts 17 who examine things according to the scriptures to find what is true. And as Jesus said to his disciples, we need to be wise as serpents and yet innocent as doves. We can't respond to the arrogance and insatiability of the false teachers with our own arrogance. That doesn't work. So the question becomes, can we actually spot false teaching? Could we spot false teachers? Could we spot false teaching if it was in our newsfeed? If it was on TV? If it was from our favorite teacher? Could we spot it? Do we know the word of God well enough to do that? But there's also a second thing, because it says we're enticed by our passions, just like the false teachers are. So what passions entice you? It could be physical, it could be sexual, as we've seen in this passage, but it could also be emotional that closeness that you desire. It could be political. It could be for safety. It could be for security. What is it that if we're in that trap, you would not want to let go of? What is that? The other thing we need is we need true gospel teachers. If there are false teachers out there, we need true people teaching the gospel, not only from pulpits, but also all over the Christian world. We need true teachers of the gospel who are parents, who are friends, who teach in schools, We need them all over. We need them in the business world, in the engineering world. We need true teachers of the gospel. Just because you're not teaching on a Sunday morning doesn't mean you don't have teaching to do. It doesn't mean you don't need to know God's word for yourself. And these are all important questions to ask ourselves and to evaluate. But also, I think it's helpful to look all the way back at our first parents, Adam and Eve. You see, in Genesis 3, we have the very first example of false teaching. We have the serpent deceiving in the garden. The serpent says, did God actually say 
The serpent says, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God. What arrogance and what emptiness. We also see in that passage, the tree was a delight to the eyes and desired to make one wise. Adam and Eve tried to satiate their desires, tried to satisfy them, and ended up enslaved to them. Now, well, why might we ask, if Adam and Eve in their innocence couldn't stand up to false teaching, what about us who are born in sin? What, what hope do we have? Well, praise be to God for our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, because he himself stood up to under false teaching, and he was tempted not in a garden, but in a wilderness, as we see in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. More than this, he is the complete opposite of the false teachers that we see in this passage. He came not in arrogance, but in humility. Even though he was God himself, he came in humility. He also lived sinlessly. He was never overcome by his desires. He was never enslaved by them. But he's not simply a model for us to try and emulate, because if we do that, again, we're going to be living out of our own arrogance, living out of our own desires. Rather, he is our Savior. And what this means is he died for us because we can't live faithfully, because we were enslaved to sin, because we were arrogant about what we thought we knew. And so Christ himself gave his perfect righteousness to us, his perfect life to us, and took upon himself our shameful death. Is this the Jesus that these false teachers are teaching? No, but this is the Jesus that is true and biblical and must be taught. The true Jesus that is living water, as opposed to waterless and empty springs. The true bread of life that satisfies unlike our sinful desires that enslave. Is this the gospel that we know, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, attested to perfectly in the Holy Scriptures alone, and all glory be to God alone? Is that the gospel that's being taught? That's the gospel that should be being taught. And that's the problem with these false teachers. I had the opportunity this week to watch the documentary on Netflix, American Gospel. Now, it's not an easy watch, but I highly recommend it to you. It's all about the prosperity gospel, word of faith, healing, and just the utter, uh, the utter emptiness that it is, how arrogant it is and how empty. Now, in the documentary, there's a man named Justin Peters, and who, in efforts to reveal what's actually true, has been to 17 different healing rallies. Now, Justin has cerebral palsy, so he walks with crutches. And he tells the story, whenever he gets to one of these rallies, he tries to make his way to the front. But they always are screening who goes up on stage to be healed. And he's never allowed up because his ailment is too obvious. And it would be too obvious that he wasn't actually healed. So he's turned away. And he and another man in this documentary describe the part of the rallies that we never get to see. And you never see it on TV. He says, in the back are dozens upon dozens upon dozens of sick people. People who have come and given money and need healing. People in wheelchairs. Parents with sick and dying children in their arms. And there's no hope for them in that place. And it was so hard to watch. It made me sick to my stomach. But it also made me understand why this text speaks so strongly of these false teachers and why such punishment is reserved for them. Because they claim to be teaching in Jesus' name. But they're not. You see, Jesus is our only true hope, but they're actually giving out despair instead of hope, right? They say, if you're not healed, you either haven't given enough money or you don't believe enough. It can't be my fault. 
That's a problem. This is not the gospel that they're preaching and teaching. But praise be to God, whom through his word and spirit maintains a true church, a people for his own precious possession. And who says in Revelation 21, he says this, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is our true gospel hope. And so while false teachers are arrogant and empty and insatiable and enslaved, we have the true gospel in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. That is our hope, that is our comfort, and that is our creed. That is what we teach. That is who we are as Christians. So may it be true of us, not only this week, not only this month, but for the rest of our lives until we see Christ face to face. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word, which shows us what you would have us to do, which shows us that we can't do enough, but yet Jesus has died for us. Thank you also that you plant your word deep in us through your spirit. Lord, allow us to be true teachers of the word, to have a desire to know your word more, and to teach it rightly. Lord, Would you strengthen us to stand up against false teaching, to stand up against hollow, empty, and arrogant gospels that are different and empty. Thank you for the true gospel, the living hope that we have, and for your spirit by which we live out these things. Amen.